In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. You can schedule a free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash gold. Well, tomorrow will be the inauguration of of Joseph Biden as the 46th president of the United States. Donald Trump will be returning to life as a private citizen. And, you know, I hate to say I told you so, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is I told you so from the very day Donald Trump was inaugurated four years ago, I said he would be a one-term president And he is a one-term president. There was all this talk that Donald Trump was going to be the next Ronald Reagan. And at the time, I said that the comparisons were wrong. They were one president off. That the comparison was to Jimmy Carter, not to Ronald Reagan. And my comparison was that it would be one term. That uh, Trump would serve one term, just like Jimmy Carter did and that he was a one-termer sandwiched in between two terms of Republicans. And so I thought that this would be the case with Trump in reverse, that Trump would follow a two-term Democrat and then be followed by a two-term Democrat. The other similarity, I said, was that when Carter came to office, 
the economy was in bad shape. And Carter was perceived as the outsider who was going to shake things up in Washington. He was a peanut farmer from Georgia. He was going to come to Washington and clean house and kind of solve the problems that the career politicians created. Well, the problems got worse under Carter because he really didn't do anything different uh, than the policies that he inherited. And, And so then, out of kind of desperation, the country went hard right. They went back Republican, except they didn't go back to a Rockefeller-type Republican of the Nixon-Ford era, but they went to the type of Republican that they had rejected in the form of Barry Goldwater in Ronald Reagan. And so we went hard the other way, and that was a very positive movement for the country. I said the same thing would happen in reverse, that because everybody had put their faith in Donald Trump to be the outsider, to drain the swamp and make America great again, because he would fail in delivering on that central promise that the country would then go back to the party before Trump, only further left, do the same type of move that we made with Reagan, only in reverse. And now we went to Joseph Biden. Only this is not the same Joseph Biden that was the vice president under Obama This is a more left-wing version of the same guy that will really reflect the policies of the squad, of AOC, and of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders was rejected in the primaries, but really his policies were embraced. And I think the nation is now ready for a Bernie Sanders-style presidency, even if it happens under the watch of Joe Biden. So that's the similarity. Unfortunately, it's a polarity in similarities. And rather than the country being fortunate in that we've made a move to Reagan, it's going to be very unfortunate in the move that it's made. Maybe the only difference is that Biden may not live long enough to serve two full terms. Uh, So potentially he may be followed by another Democrat. If, however, Biden doesn't finish out his term. If something happens, either he dies of natural causes or something happens and Camilla Harris ends up as the president, then obviously she could potentially be reelected and and maybe make the parallel between Carter and Trump uh, more exact. But for those of you who think that I got lucky and, you know, not really lucky, but my forecast came true because of the coronavirus outbreak. Like that's the only reason that Trump wasn't reelected and that but for coronavirus, he would have had a second term. And I actually disagree with that. I think that Trump was going to lose regardless and that in fact, the outbreak of coronavirus actually gave Trump a better chance of reelection than what he might have had absent the virus because it gave Trump a convenient excuse to blame a lot of bad stuff on. Had a lot of that bad stuff happened without the coronavirus, then on what would Trump blame? Uh, It would be hard for him to find another scapegoat. So in that sense, the coronavirus was the gift that keeps on giving. And of course, it's going to give even more to the Democrats as it provides even more excuses to implement their socialist agenda. And of course, Donald Trump continued to blame the coronavirus for any of the problems that we've had in the final year of his presidency, 
in his farewell address that I just uh, watched uh, moments before I began recording today's podcast. And I want to start off the podcast by really addressing Trump's address because that really personified his entire presidency in that the entire address uh, was a lie. I mean, everything the president said, I mean, not, okay, not everything. There were some kernels in truth uh, in that speech, but overall, the president took credit for accomplishments he did not make, for victories he did not win. In fact, he reminded the voters why he was elected, what the campaign was about, that it was about making America great again and turning the country around. And he claimed falsely that he had delivered on all of his promises, that he had accomplished everything that people had hoped for when they voted for him and so much more. When the fact of the matter is nothing that the people hoped would be accomplished under President Trump was accomplished. But instead, Trump claimed credit for making America great again and now turning over this new, improved, great America uh, to Biden and wishing him luck in, uh, you know, in maintaining this greatness that the president created. In fact, he reiterated his false statements that under his watch, America had built the greatest economy in the history of the world, that the U.S. economy prior to COVID-19 a year ago, that the U.S. economy stood as the strongest and greatest economy that the world has ever seen, and that the only reason we stumbled was because of the China virus, but because the economy was so great and so strong and so resilient, we bounced back quicker than any other country and that the coronavirus did less damage to America than it did anywhere else, which of course are a bunch of lies. We had a massive bubble before the coronavirus. The bubble that Trump helped inflate was bigger than the bubble that Obama helped inflate and that he passed on to Trump which of course was bigger than the one he inherited uh, from Bush. But when that bubble started to lose air, even before the coronavirus, and then the COVID-19 put an even bigger hole into a deflating bubble, and the Fed was able to revive it with uh, even more air, this is a temporary reprieve. The fact that the economy imploded so quickly following covid is evidence of how unsustainable it was, how phony the economy was before COVID if the whole thing could collapse like a house of cards uh, based on, on the one virus. Now, of course, a lot of the problem was the way the government chose to react to the virus. But because we had no savings, because the whole recovery was built on a mountain of debt, that's why we were not in a strong shape to be able to weather the storm. If we really had the greatest economy in the history of the world, we would have been in better position to weather that storm. It's precisely because the economy was so weak before COVID that COVID uh, impacted it to the extent that it did. Now, of course, Donald Trump, in bragging about how great he did, he focused on uh, trade, you know, the fantastic trade deals that he negotiated, the huge success of the tariffs on China, his you know new trade deals with Mexico and with Canada, right? All this great stuff on trade. 
except the president ignores the fact that the trade deficits today are much bigger than they were when he was elected. So how can he claim that we won on trade when we're losing bigger on trade now than before he was elected? He doesn't point that out. He talks about how we replace these awful trade deals with these great trade deals. Well, if these new trade deals are so much better than the old trade deals, why is our trade deficit worse now under these great deals than it was under the horrible deals? And it's not just COVID because the trade deficits were getting bigger even before COVID came around. And if what the president said is true, that we're so much stronger than the other countries and we weathered the COVID storm better and our economy bounced back better, why are our trade deficits with the rest of the world even bigger post-COVID than they were pre-COVID? Again, that proves another lie that our economy hasn't recovered. Our economy is even in worse shape as evidenced by the fact that it now produces even bigger trade deficits. Of course, one of the things the president ignored completely in his uh, farewell address was how much debt he was leaving America. Because as a candidate, he was very critical of all of the debt that was run up uh, by Obama. In fact, not just the debt run up by Obama, but the debt run up by George Bush and previous presidents. And he was going to solve the problem. He was actually talking about paying off the national debt. You know, while he was campaigning, I mean, there was going to be no debt. I mean, the trade deals are going to be so fantastic. We were going to make so much money. We were just going to pay off our debt. That was what Donald Trump was saying when he was stumping around, uh, you know, in the Republican primaries. Of course, I said that was a bunch of nonsense. I mean, I wrote an article specifically addressing the fact that under Trump, the budget deficits would be bigger than ever. And that is exactly what happened when Barack Obama took office, the national debt was $10.626 trillion. And after eight years of the Obama presidency, he turned over a $19.947 trillion debt to Donald Trump, almost $20 trillion. So he didn't quite double the national debt, but he did add over $9 trillion in eight years, which is over a trillion dollars per year. And if you go back in time, he almost, but not quite, almost added as much debt in his eight years as all the presidents did before him from George Washington to George Bush. I mean, it wasn't quite, but it was almost. Donald Trump almost accomplished what it took Obama eight years to do, he almost did it in four. Now, we don't have the total numbers right now, but when I look at the national debt clock, which sometimes is a little bit behind, that is showing the current national debt at $27.81 trillion. So almost $28 trillion, which means that Donald Trump in four years would have added about eight trillion to the national debt. Almost as much, but not quite as what Obama did in four years. But that is about $2 trillion per year in additional debt. I mean, that is a record for sure, adding $2 trillion every single year. Now, of course, a lot of that is back end loaded into the last year, because that's the year with COVID, where the deficits went off the charts. But We were running big deficits anyway, even without COVID. I guess the good news for Trump 
But the bad news for the rest of the nation is that Biden is going to beat that record. I mean, Biden is going to add more than $2 trillion per year to the national debt in the next four years. I think he may even double it. He may add $4 trillion. I mean, he's going to blow right through $3 trillion, so he could add $4 trillion, which is $16 trillion in four years. I mean, maybe, maybe he may be able to push it to $5 trillion, which would mean $20 trillion worth of debt in a four-year time period. We'll see. I mean, this is going to be the, the most amount of debt we've ever seen, and one of the main reasons for that is going to be Donald Trump. I mean, that, again, is the biggest failure of the Trump presidency is that everybody thinks it was such a big success. And everybody thinks that the Trump presidency is the best example of the free market alternative uh, to uh, the Washington establishment, big government policies of the past. You know, but it wasn't. Donald Trump did not make government smaller. He made government much, much bigger and much more expensive. In fact, one of the ways he made it bigger was by adding another branch to the armed forces, the Space Force. And he actually bragged about creating the Space Force in his farewell address. Well, thanks to the president, now we have to pay for the Space Force that we really didn't need, that could have been taken care of by the Air Force. But now we have another bureaucracy at the Pentagon. And of course, this is going to be you know, feeding on itself and it's going to become more and more expensive as time goes by. And we can thank uh, President Trump for doing that. In fact, while I'm on the subject of the armed forces, the one thing that Trump mentioned that I do want to give him credit for, and I don't want to diminish this credit because it is a pretty good thing. He said that he did not start any wars, that he did not get America into war, which is true. As the commander in chief of the U.S. armed forces, he did not lead our troops into any battles. And on behalf of of all the Americans who did not die in the wars that were not started, and on behalf of all of their families, thank you, Mr. President. Thank you for that. That is the one good thing that you did. Now, there may have been a few regulations that you repealed or other regulations that you did not uh, you know, enact. And I will agree that the three people that you nominated to the Supreme Court during your four years are probably going to be much better jurists than the three people that Hillary Clinton would have nominated had she been president instead of you. So I'm not saying that everything about the Trump presidency was a failure, but the failure is the perception that this is as good as it gets, that Trump was some far right-wing conservative and he was the epitome of the free market, and that's the best we could do. And the problem is that now, I don't think we've ever been in a situation where the Republican Party as a group, as a political party, has been in a worse position to push back on the growth of government than they are now because their champion, their leader, the greatest president ever in the eyes of so many Republicans, he believed in big government. He wanted more government spending. He, you know, he loved Obamacare. I mean, he didn't like the name Obamacare, just like he didn't like the name NAFTA. He just wanted to come up with a new name that he could take credit for, the USMCA. I mean, the president loves saying the USMCA and how great that is and how lousy uh, NAFTA is, even though the deals are you know, practically the same. Well, the same thing about Obamacare. The only thing he doesn't like about Obamacare is the name Obama. 
If it was called Trump Care, he would love it. And in fact, that's what he wanted. He wanted Trump Care. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com com/gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com/gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com/gold code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill I mean, the essence of Obamacare was that sick people can buy insurance at the same price as healthy people. And Trump has thoroughly and completely embraced that and forced the Republican Party to embrace it too. The only difference is at least the Democrats, at least Obama wanted to pretend that in order for sick people to get insurance cheap, healthy people would have to pay something in the form of a tax. Well, Trump made it worse. He wants to pretend that the sick people can get health care for the same cost as healthy people, but it's not going to cost healthy people a nickel. Nobody has to pay a tax to make this gift from government possible. So the Republicans have never been in a worse position to push back against socialized medicine than they are now, thanks to Trump, but they've never again been in a worse position to push back against big government, to push back against deficit spending. After all, Trump loved deficit spending, and they loved it when Trump was doing it. So why object to it now? In fact, when the Federal Reserve was printing all this money, 
The, the, the Republicans didn't say anything about it. In fact, the only time the Republicans or Trump criticized the Fed is when they weren't printing enough money. The only flack that Powell got from Trump was that he was too tight, that interest rates were too high, that they weren't negative, that he, they weren't doing more QE. So how are the Republicans going to criticize the Fed now for monetizing all the Biden deficits when they were cheerleading the exact same conduct when it was the Trump deficits? They can't. They're not. They've been completely castrated when it comes to any ability to push back uh, and, and say that the solution isn't more government, more spending, more money printing, more deficits. So the Democrats really have carte blanche to spend whatever they want, borrow whatever they want, and print whatever they want. And, you know, the, the Republicans aren't going to do anything about it. In fact, the only thing they seem to care about is taxes. The only thing they're worried about is that the Biden administration may raise taxes on somebody. They don't care about all the extra spending. They don't care about how much money they borrow or how much money the Fed prints. They just want to make sure that taxes on the rich don't go up, which makes them look even more ridiculous and even more foolish if that is the only thing that they've got or that's the only portion of the Biden agenda that they object to, especially when you can point to all of the wealth that, uh, you know, the 1% or the richest people have. In fact, that was also part of what Trump took credit for in his farewell address was the booming stock market. This is great. The stock market is setting record after record. He was criticizing Obama for the stock market bubble. Yet that is now the centerpiece, the cornerstone of his campaign is this great stock market bubble. And yes, the stock market has gone up since Trump was elected. I mean, the Dow Jones is up about 56% since Trump took office. Now, I know Trump likes to claim credit for the gains from his election, not just his inauguration. But I was looking at from the election and the market is up 56%. The price of gold is up 53% since Trump took the oath of office. Gold was barely over 1,200 an ounce uh, when Trump was sworn in, and that's a little over 1840 today. Uh, so that's about a 53% rise in the price of gold. So in real terms, the stock market is not up nearly as much as it is in nominal terms, but I think it should be even worse. I think gold right now is being way underpriced by the market relative to uh, the Dow Jones. And so I think that is going to be corrected during the Biden term. And so we're going to see gold really catch up to where it should be in relation to stocks. Of course, the NASDAQ, some of these other indexes did a lot better than the Dow Jones. Of course, I'm not even going to bother to mention how much Bitcoin was up while Trump was president. In fact, I'm surprised that Donald Trump didn't try to claim credit for the rally in Bitcoin uh, and, and say so that's another great thing that happened while he was president because I mean, the one is just as relevant as the other. So again, it's not just that Trump failed to make America great. It's that he's pretended that he succeeded. That's what's so dangerous, thinking that what was accomplished under Trump is it. Because remember, no government spending was cut under Trump, right? We didn't take any real pain to get what is required to get any real gain, right? No sacrifices were made. No entitlements were reformed, right? Nothing real was done to make America great again. Yet Donald Trump claims that that's what's happened. So how do we ask America 
to make the sacrifices that need to be made in order to truly restore America's greatness when we're pretending that we've done it and no one had to sacrifice anything. So we've basically made the likelihood of America ever doing what's required to really be great again. We've substantially reduced the likeliness of that ever happening thanks to the four years that Trump was in office. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how quickly a lot of the, you know, real right-wing, conservative, free market, hard money, libertarian guys that were so quick to embrace the Trump presidency simply because he was so popular, I wonder how they're going to wiggle out of the box that they put themselves in and how they're now going to argue against Biden and against the deficits and the government spending under this president without looking like hypocrites. I mean, that's the one place where at least I can really stand out. Nobody can accuse me of being a hypocrite when it comes to criticizing Democrats or Joe Biden for his deficits and his spending because I never let up on my criticism of the Republican Party, of President Donald Trump, of any of the Republicans in Congress who signed on to bigger government. I never once wavered from that. I was equally critical of deficit spending and big government under Trump as I was under Obama. In fact, I may have even been more critical under Trump because Obama didn't promise less government. He promised more government and he delivered on that promise. It was the Republicans in Congress and the Tea Party that prevented him from delivering even bigger on that promise, which is what he would have liked to have done but was unable to do. The reason I was more critical on Trump is because Trump promised less government and delivered more. And what made it so much more frustrating was so many other small government guys, conservative Republicans, were jumping on jumping on the Trump train and pretending everything was great when I could see that that train was going over the edge of a cliff. And as I said, the Republicans who were able to push back against Obama and prevent Obama from delivering even bigger on his promises of more government, those Republicans now, thanks to Trump and thanks to their own positions that they took in support of Trump, they're not going to be there to push back against Biden. So Biden is going to be able to achieve far more than Obama did when it comes to growing government and making government bigger, and therefore he's going to achieve a lot more damage when it comes to the U.S. economy. If you're a business owner, you don't need me to tell you that running a business is tough. But you know, you may be making it harder on yourself than necessary. So don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the spreadsheets and all the old software that you've outgrown. Now's the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over all your financials, your HR, your inventory, your e-commerce, and more. Everything you need all in one place instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or a hundred million in revenue, you can save time and money with NetSuite. You can join the over 24,000 companies that are already using NetSuite right now.
Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash gold. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash gold. That's netsuite.com slash gold. Another example, though, of how much trouble the U.S. is in economically uh, was available earlier in the day. Another example of how much trouble the U.S. is in economically was available earlier in the day when former Federal Reserve Chairwoman Janet Yellen and the nominee to be the next Secretary of the Treasury sat before the Senate Committee on Banking for her confirmation for her new role. And talk about the blind leading the blind. I mean, when it comes to economics, Yellen is as clueless as ever, and so are all the senators that are there to confirm her nomination to supposedly lead the U.S. economic recovery. And of course, that's what all the questions were about. What is she going to do? Uh, How is she going to advise President Biden as to what could be done, right? Considering this pandemic, how can we revive the U.S. economy and restore uh, what was lost? And of course, her answer is we need more government spending. We are needing to target money to the people who need it the most. Genius. I mean, it's a good thing we got Janet Yellen to come up with this brilliant idea. Well, let's just give the people who need it the most some money so they can go out and spend it. Oh, brilliant. That's really going to help the economy. And where is the government going to get all this money that it's going to give to the people who need it? Oh, well, from the Federal Reserve, of course, where she used to be the chair chairman or chairwoman. Now they'll get it from Powell and his buddies. So we're going to print a bunch of money and we're going to give it to the people who need it. That's our plan. That, that's a prescription for disaster. That's not going to cure anything. And of course, you know, Janet Yellen talked about, oh, and we're also going to invest in infrastructure and we're going to do that. I mean, she talked about how we're going to make the U.S. economy uh, more globally competitive with all this extra government spending, that new regulations and yes, even higher taxes, which of course was the only thing the Republicans were pushing back on. All these Republicans, the only thing they could try to do was to get her to say that it would be a mistake for the president, for Biden, to deliver on his promised tax hikes, which makes these guys look like complete uh, hypocrites and, 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 and look completely out of touch because the only people that Biden is talking about raising taxes on, and I'm talking about officially, not the unofficial inflation tax, are corporations and the rich, the people who have benefited from COVID-19, the people who have seen the greatest increase in their wealth, the people who are just working from home and making more money than when they actually had to go to their job and their stock portfolios are going through the roof. And now the Republicans are worried that these fat cats might get a tax hike. And the reason the Republicans are claiming that it would be a mistake for Joe Biden to deliver on his promise of raising taxes on the rich is because we're in a recession. And according to the Republicans, it's not a good time to raise taxes when you're in a recession, right? Or when you're experiencing a pandemic. They're not necessarily saying recession because I don't even think they believe we're in a recession. Now they think we're out of it. But the Republicans are saying you shouldn't raise taxes 
during a pandemic and they're trying to corner Janet Yellen into somehow agreeing with them that yes, the president should not be raising taxes during a pandemic. But of course, none of these Republicans seem to give a damn about government spending going up during a pandemic, right? They couldn't care less. In fact, they all voted to increase government spending during the pandemic. Well, you can't be against taxes, but in favor of spending because the cost of government is measured by what it spends, not what it taxes. The government takes resources from the private sector the minute it spends money. Taxes is just one way the government pays for those appropriated resources. The other way is the way the Republicans are advocating, through inflation, through printing money. But the burden comes from the spending, not the taxes. The taxes are merely how we shoulder the burden. The Republicans just want the burden to be shouldered in a different way, through inflation, through a destruction of the value of your savings and your your earnings, and through a rise in the cost of living. Look, it is hypocritical of the Republicans to be in favor of more government spending during a pandemic, but against higher taxes to finance that spending. Especially, and this again is where they look like complete you know, hypocrites, is where they are against raising the taxes on just the rich, on the people who are benefiting the most from the cheap money policies that are being seen as the salvation from the pandemic. And you know, this idea that spending helps the economy is so broadly shared. Now, I was reading this article about the IMF, and this is what the IMF is urging policymakers worldwide to do in the face of the pandemic. Spend as much as you can. IMF head urges governments worldwide. Spend as much as you can. I mean, what asinine advice is that? I mean, when you are in trouble, right, if the economy is suffering from some type of shock, you should be conserving your resources, right? Or at least putting them to productive use, not squandering them on consumption. I, what kind of nonsense is that? You're in trouble and just, so just go on a spending binge, right? When you have a lot of the world that's suffering uh, from a virus, let's blow whatever money we have saved quickly. Let's all have parties and just start buying stuff. No, it should be, hey, now is the time uh, you know, to button down the hatches, you know, pull in the horns. You know, we need to hunker down. We need to conserve. We need to brace for this problem that we have where we're the world is sicker. We're not going to be producing as much. So we better, you know, get used to having a little less for a while until until this virus passes, right? We need to save our resources and we need to be proactive to go out and say, no, 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 let's just blow whatever we have. Let's just be as extravagant as we possibly can right now in the face of this crisis is ridiculous advice. But that's what people believe. People believe that economies grow because people, because governments print money. And if they're not growing fast enough, it's just because they're not printing enough. Of course, that belies all the historic examples of the governments that print the most, printing their countries into complete economic oblivion which is where we're headed. And historically, the countries that have had the greatest economic growth in real terms have been the countries that have had the soundest monetary policy, countries that have had balanced budgets or budget surpluses, that have had low rates of inflation, that have kept their government small. That's the ticket to economic growth. That's the secret sauce uh, to 
share in prosperity. It's the limitations that are placed on government and government spending and government money printing. It's not when you embrace those principles and just print to your heart's content and spend whatever you want, but that's exactly what the IMF is advocating, and that's exactly what the United States is about to do under President Biden and with the leadership of Janet Yelling cheering him on and without any viable Republican opposition. Because as I said earlier, the Republicans lost their ability to object when they signed on to the Trump train by embracing all of the deficit spending that Trump wanted to do. They are not in a position to push back against any of the deficit spending that Biden wants to do. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They can't claim that we need to cut government because why didn't they say that when Trump was president? Why didn't they eliminate some government spending when Donald Trump was there? Government got bigger when Trump was president. And according to the Republicans, that was a good thing. Trump made America great again by making government bigger than it was when he took office. So if bigger government is part of America's greatness, well, then why oppose bigger government under Biden? I mean, we need more big government under Biden. Now, one of the other areas that Republicans did try to challenge Janet Yellen on was on the minimum wage. And of course, Joe Biden's advocacy of a $15 minimum wage. And they are trying to get uh, Yellen to admit that this is a bad thing, to acknowledge the study by the uh, you know Congressional Budget Office. I forget how many jobs, you know, whatever millions of jobs they've said will be lost Uh, from a $15 minimum wage. But they're trying to get Janet Yellen to say, hey, maybe this is not the right time to increase the minimum wage. And of course, she was not buying into uh, the Republicans' uh, perspective or taking the bait to try to claim that it is going to uh, cause jobs. But again, the big problem for Republicans when it comes to their being against an increase in the minimum wage is the fact that they've already accepted the idea that we need a minimum wage in the first place. And once you have 
accepted the idea that a minimum wage is good, then it's almost impossible to argue that raising it is bad. Because if having a minimum wage is good, if a $7.25 minimum wage is good, why isn't $15 better? Answer me that. I mean, you can't say because it's going to hurt jobs. It's going to cause people to lose their jobs. Because if that's true, then a $7.25 minimum wage also caused people to lose their jobs. Just not as many people, right? Because if the minimum wage is $7.25, anybody whose skills are 4 or $5 an hour, they've lost a job. They've been made unemployable by the $7.25 minimum wage. So why are you in favor of that? I mean, don't you care about the people who were put out of work by a $7.25 minimum wage? Because if you don't care about those people, then why do you care about the people who are going to be put out of work if you raise the wage? See, it's the same thing as when the Republicans said they wanted a stimulus, but they wanted smaller. They didn't want a $2 trillion stimulus. They wanted a $1 trillion stimulus. Well, if a $1 trillion stimulus is good, why isn't a $2 trillion stimulus better? There is no answer to that question because a $1 trillion stimulus is bad. A $2 trillion stimulus is just twice as bad. So the Republicans were supporting something that they knew was bad because they didn't want to get something that was even worse and that they knew was even worse. But the problem is they pretended that what they supported was good. They didn't say, look, we think a trillion dollar stimulus is going to hurt the economy, but we're willing to vote for it so we don't have to get a $2 trillion stimulus, which is going to be even worse. That's not what the Republicans said. The Republicans tried to claim that their trillion dollar stimulus was going to be helpful, but that the $2 trillion stimulus would be harmful. See, that is a very difficult position to take. It's much easier to take the Democratic position that if $1 trillion is good, $2 trillion is twice as good. The Republicans just don't have the guts to actually argue for free market capitalism and limited government. And that's the same thing when it comes to the minimum wage. None of these Republicans in Congress have the guts to call for the abolition of the minimum wage. If you are in favor of any minimum wage, then it's very difficult to argue that that minimum wage that you support should not be increased, right? Especially if you look at all of the inflation and the increase in the cost of living since the minimum wage that you do support was enacted. Well, if you supported it then, if you think it's a good thing, then we at least need to uh, raise it up. See, if you are consistent, and that's something that I am, then it's easy. See, I know a minimum wage of $7.25 is bad. That means the minimum wage of $15 is worse, right? If you argue that the minimum wage of $7.25 is good, how do you argue that $15 is bad? I mean, what is the magic number? I mean, where does a good thing become a bad thing? I mean, because if you think $7.25 is the number, I mean, why not $8.25? Why not $9? Why not $10? I mean, how did you magically divine? I mean, that's what I say. Where, why is 15 the right number? I mean, 15, why not 18? Why not 20? Why not 25? I mean, how did you pick $15 out of the air? I mean, because if we're going to set policy, I mean, we shouldn't just be guessing, right? I mean, shouldn't there be some evidence that shows what is the optimal minimum wage? I mean, we're not just going to grab a number and say, let's just go, go with 15. Because if 15 is good, why isn't 16 a little bit better? And if 16 is good, why not 17? You see, if you understand the dynamics, it's easy to explain it. The higher the minimum wage, the more people you make illegally employable, the more people you put out of work. It's very simple. 
right? The best minimum wage is no minimum wage because everybody who wants a job can get one. Once you start imposing a minimum wage, then you start lifting the bottom rung of the job ladder. And the question is, how high do you want to lift it? How many people do you want to make it illegal to have jobs? Because if the minimum wage is $10 an hour, then a certain number of people are put out of work. If you raise it to 11, well, now you increase the number of people who are put out of work. And the higher you make it, the more people you put out of work. So if they decide to go from 15 to 20, well, then all the people who would have been able to get jobs at $16 an hour and $17 an hour, now they're just as unemployed as the people who are unemployed who could have got 13 or 14 but who now have been eliminated from the labor force by a $15 minimum wage. So when you are consistent, it is very easy to argue your point. It's just that when you're inconsistent and you become a hypocrite because you don't have the guts to publicly state that the minimum wage is bad in any form and be against the minimum wage and argue for the repeal of the minimum wage. Don't try to argue an indefensible position that one minimum wage is good, but another minimum wage is just too high because then you just look greedy. You just look like you're stingy. You just look like you're trying to protect the businesses, which falls right into the Democratic's trap. If you are argue the minimum wage from the correct perspective, you argue it from the perspective of the worker. And a $15 an hour minimum wage hurts workers. It doesn't hurt as much as a $20 minimum wage would, but it hurts more than a $7.25 minimum wage because more workers are impacted. And of course, the lower your skills, the, the, the lower the minimum wage that might impact you. So, of course, the people who are hurt the most by any minimum wage are young people who don't have any skills at all and who could benefit the most from a low-paying job, right? Those are the ones who are hurt the most by the minimum wage. As the minimum wage gets higher and higher, um, then more and more people end up getting victimized by it. But I, you know, constantly hear people talking about, well, you know, if you have a job, and this is what, what Biden said in, 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 in a speech he gave the other day, you know, if you have a job, you should be able to earn a decent living from that job, right? You should be able to support your family on your job. No, not every job is designed to pay enough wages to support a family. You know, you're, you can't support your family cooking French fries at McDonald's. I mean, that's not there. There, You are not delivering enough productivity to the owner of that McDonald's franchise for him to pay you enough money to support your family. The guy or gal who's supposed to be cooking French fries shouldn't have a family to support. They should be supported by their family. They should still be living at home. They should be a kid. They should be doing this job, you know, after school or, you know, during their summer vacations or working their way through college or something like that. These are not the jobs that you have when you have a family to support. You don't even start a family until you can earn enough money to afford one, which means you've accumulated a lot more skills than what is required to cook French fries. But to say that every job needs to uh, deliver enough income to the worker to support a family is crazy. I mean, you might as well say, well, you know, everybody who has a job, they should have enough money to buy a house, buy a car, save for their retirement, put their kids through college, you know, take vacations with the family, eat in nice restaurants, buy designer clothes. Yes, these are all the things that we hope to do 
with the income that we have from our jobs, but we know we can't do all these things with the first job that we have when we're a kid and we don't have any skills. You can't afford all those things with the income that you earn until the labor that you provide in exchange for that income delivers enough value to an employer so that he can pay you enough to have those things. The Democrats want to put the cart before the horse. They want to they want to say that just because you have a job, you should be entitled to all the things uh, that people hope to one day buy with those jobs. And what they're going to end up doing is eliminating jobs. They're going to be making it impossible for people to get their first job, which means they can't get their second job or their third job or their fourth job, which means they never have the ability to increase their skills to the point where they can afford all these things that the Democrats want to force employers to provide unskilled workers with any job uh, that they have. And all the employer can do is like, hey, I can't cover those costs. Uh, I'm just not going to hire. And that is ultimately what happens, right? That's what the businesses do is they don't hire people, right? That, that is the reality that the Democrats never want to discuss, that the real minimum wage is zero. Nobody has to hire anybody, right? So I don't have to pay the minimum wage because I don't have to hire anybody. I can, I can automate. I can outsource. I can do the stuff myself, right? There are a lot of ways around overpaying workers. The government can set the minimum wage, but they can't force anybody to actually pay it because they can't force anybody to hire anybody. And that's something that the Biden administration is going to be grappling with uh, during the next four years, especially since I believe they will succeed in raising the minimum wage. And they also will succeed in increasing the appeal of not working anyway, because at the same time, they're going to make it legally more difficult for people to get jobs. They're going to make it far more lucrative for people not to have jobs uh, with uh, government welfare programs or so-called extended unemployment benefits or universal basic income. Whatever they end up getting passed will be passed. And again, the Republicans are not in a position uh, to object. They simply do not have uh, the credibility to mount any, any uh credible opposition. And so therefore there will be none. So my words of advice to everybody as we embark on this new uh, Biden uh, term is not to hesitate. You know, gold was up a little better than 50% under the Trump term. It could be up 50% a year under the Biden term. It could be up a lot more than that. I expect the dollar to crash. I don't think we're going to make it for four full years without a U.S. dollar crisis. I think one was going to happen anyway, but certainly uh, the Biden presidency should accelerate that process and bring about the crisis even quicker. Uh, if we catch a break and maybe the crisis is, you know, is delayed, but I think during the time the dollar is going to continue to fall, uh, consumer prices are going to continue to rise. Inflation is going to continue to ravage uh, the portfolios and the standard of living of Americans until it becomes a crisis. The only question is, how far does the dollar have to fall before it becomes a crisis? How low does it have to go before it crashes? Right? That is the $64 trillion question. But what I am confident in is that the dollar will continue to decline from now until then. And therefore, the urgency to sell U.S. dollars, to get out of U.S. stocks, to do all the things that I have been encouraging the listeners of my podcast to do since I started 
my podcast. The urgency to do this has never been greater and probably the time frame in which to get it done has never been shorter. So do what you can. If you have accounts with Europe Pacific Capital already, top him up, send some more money in, sell some more U.S. stocks if you still have them, U.S. bonds, get more money into foreign stocks, the right countries, the right stocks, get more into gold and silver as opposed to just holding uh, fiat currencies. You know, if you're holding these big gains in digital fiat currencies, if you got Bitcoin or any of this other garbage, uh, you know, you should have sold it a long time ago. You're lucky if you didn't because the price is even higher. So you have an even bigger opportunity to get out. Don't blow it. Don't come crying in a few years, you know, when all these paper gains are gone and you're left holding the bag. I mean, this that's another time where I'm going to end up saying I told you so and I'm not going to regret it. I'm not going to say it with any trepidation or any hesitation. I'm going to be very happy to say all these crypto guys, I told you so. Uh, once this bubble completely implodes. So before it does, cash out and, 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 and protect yourself. Hunker down. Remember, the tax that's going up for sure is the inflation tax. Yes, they are going to raise taxes on the rich. They're going to have higher income taxes. They're going to have a higher capital gains taxes. That's a sure thing. Maybe it won't start 2021. Maybe it won't kick in until 2022. But I wouldn't bet on that. I still think there's a good chance that these higher taxes on the so-called rich are going to kick in this year and be retroactive to January 1st of this year. But the tax that's going to start right away and the tax that's going to fall heaviest on the most number of people is going to be the inflation tax. And the good news is that's the one tax that we can avoid, at least on our savings and investments. We can't avoid it on our future wages and incomes, but you can avoid it on what you've managed to accumulate thus far in the form of savings and investing by divesting yourself of what is being taxed. And what is being taxed is the U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar denominated assets. So you avoid that tax by getting out of dollars and you get out of dollars by getting into foreign assets, foreign stocks, right, foreign bonds uh, and, and other assets. And this is what I can help you do. We are building and managing portfolios at Euro Pacific Capital. So contact your broker to talk to uh, one of the Euro Pacific brokers about how you can incorporate uh, our investment strategies into your portfolio. Or if you have a smaller account, if you're at you know any of these discount brokers, you can just go to my mutual funds, go to the website, uh, europacificfunds.com. You can buy the funds even directly on that website. You just go on there with a $2,500 minimum and buy my mutual funds, or you can buy them at your discount broker. Or if you're a larger investor, uh, you can call up and work personally with my representatives at Europe Pacific Capital, Europe Pacific Asset Management. 